This is America. This is the boy. Don't catch you slipping now. Look how we're living now. Void crabs be tripping now. Yeah, this is the boy. This is America. Pains in my area. I got the strap. I gotta carry him. I'ma go into this. This is the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Friends, episode 43 of Embrace the Void, where we're listening to This Is America on repeat because we have no free will. I am your host, Aaron, and with me as always is my co-host in chief, GW. How you doing, buddy? This is the void. This is the void. This is the void. Uh, So today we have a very exciting episode. We reached our patron goal of... uh, getting it was originally going to be getting me to steal man daniel dennett but instead we've got a fun surprise so uh, it ran a little long so i think we should just hop on over to that yep what's chang doing he's getting a refill on his void okay so this week we have a very special guest to help with a very special patron goal uh listeners of the show will know that i have long expounded upon my anti-free will view Uh, And we set up a patron goal where the original goal was for me to steal man Daniel Dennett's position um, supporting free will. But we've done you one better. We've found uh, a fellow podcaster and fellow philosopher uh, at Skeptical Jody is the Twitter account, though we're going to go with just Jody here. Uh, He is a philosophy student at the University of Western Ontario and someone who I've had lots of fun with on Twitter. Do you want to say hi to the void, Jody? Uh, hello, Void. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. <laughs> See how you were compelled to do that? I win. Yeah. <laughs> Game over, son. Yeah. Um, so, Jody, uh, I believe you said you wrote your master's thesis on Dennett's view of free will? Sorry? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that it was on Dennett's okay. view particularly. It was more on sort of like parsing the various views and then sort of coming down on a position, I guess. Okay, great. So, I think... What we're going to do is Jody's going to lay out, I think, a little bit of a just basic why this matters and then start leading us through Dennett's position. And I will ask questions along the way. And GW, who is here with us, say hi, G-Dubs. I'm going to make terrible jokes and go, I have no idea what the hell you guys are saying. <laughs> um, there are some important questions that we did talk about beforehand that GW was going to have in mind, right? Besides asking his very useful questions from the um, non-academics perspective. I uh, we were talking a little bit about how I think some of this conversation may hinge on a debate about what is the best kind of words to use for certain things. And so I'm hoping that GW can give us a, a non-academics perspective on that, since Jody and I are way too far down the rabbit hole of terminology at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Does that seem fair? Have I, have I laid out all the things fairly? Yeah, no, that seems great. All right, do you want to wow, hit us with Wow, two philosophers intro? just agreed on something. Let's, I mean, let's end it right there. <laughs> Boom, lock it Actually, down. Actually, I think there's probably going to be a lot of agreement, subtly. Uh, I mean, you staked out your view as being uh, you don't think free will exists, and I'm kind of agnostic, although I, I do find Dennett's uh, position a bit compelling in a lot of places. So we'll see how that goes. I, I figured we would start by, rather than defining free will, uh, which is probably going to be part of the issue as we go along, but uh, just sort of situating free will in the debate. So like, what is uh, what are the various positions one can stake out, right? So free will is often uh, contrasted with the, the, the physical universe, be it whether the universe is determined or indetermined, right? Uh, and so there's people who believe that because the universe is determined, we don't have free will. And this position is usually uh, stipulated as hard determinism. So if since the beginning of time, the laws of physics, uh, everything is cause and effect, and therefore what I do now is merely the result of all those causes, and there's no such thing as free will because of that. 
in contrast to that view is a view called uh, libertarianism. And this is a view that uh, says that there actually is indeterminism in the world. And particularly, uh, libertarians want to say, and this isn't the political view of libertarianism, so <laughs> right. uh, just to, to contrast that, right? So libertarians think that there's some special kind of indeterminism. Usually they want to locate it somewhere within the agent or part of the agent, right? I mean, if the indeterminism happens outside of you, it's not really your indeterminism in some way, right? And so they want to say that there's some indeterminism in the universe such that you become the cause of your decisions. And this is to them what free will is, right? Mm -hmm. Now, and this is Dennett's position, is sort of a halfway house going... uh, The universe might be deterministic in many ways, might be because who knows with quantum mechanics, I think most people know uh, there's could be indeterminisms in the universe, but we don't really know how they work either at the micro or macro scale and how that scales up. Uh, But we generally accept determinism as a fact. And Dennett thinks, despite this, that we can have a kind of free will or what he calls a free will worth wanting. Right. So that was the subtitle of his book, Elbow Room, written in the 80s, which is basically like, uh, of course, libertarian free will is just nonsense. But there's this other kind of free will that can work in a deterministic universe. And that's the free will we want. It's the one that's worth wanting. Right. And part of that story to, to sort of like lay it out is the reason why we want free will is because we seem to care about it right? It's what we think gives us moral responsibility, right? Most people, they, they're worried about this problem because they think that if the world is deterministic, there goes moral responsibility, no one can be held accountable, and uh, hard determinism is the necessary conclusion, right? And so Dennett's position is to say, no, we can still have moral responsibility. Now, I want to stipulate right here, this is where a lot of people want to jump ship. <laughs> and in part, in part because it seems like Dennett is changing the definition of free will in some certain sense, right? Uh, we, want, we want this, or at least we've conceived of free will being the libertarian sense in that it's free of causality in a way, right? Mm-hmm. And in, in, in a way, like, in a way, though, yeah. free will seems to have this definition like porn where I know it when I see it. Yeah. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. but, it, but here's this is the interesting thing. Dennett <laughs> conceives of free will as being a social construct in a way. Right. In that we we decide what to call free will. Right. And so he wants to label a particular subset of phenomenon free will. But other people want to say that this other particular subset is what free will is. Right. And so for for most people, it seems, although that's debatable, there's been statistics and and studies that people have done to try to gauge people's uh, ideas of whether compatibilism or or libertarianism is true. Uh, But but intuitively, it seems that people think in order to have free will, it must be uncaused in some sort of way. Right. And Dennett always tells this story, which is uh, a passage from a book by Lee Siegel about magic right and so lee siegel was traveling to india to study magic and then people would say real magic and lee siegel would respond no not real magic and of course the joke here is that real magic is the kind of magic that isn't real where (laughs) where not real magic conjuring tricks is the actual real magic right and so dennett thinks that this is an analogy with free will in that this kind of libertarian free will that people think is the real free will is not really the real free will, right? What what really is free will is the, in quote, conjuring tricks or the illusion of how our brain actually responds to reasons and has the capacity to, to interact with the world, right? Uh, now, that's, that's probably the biggest jump. I don't know if you wanted to jump in there. Uh, and say something, <laughs> but it seems um, that most people don't like that switch in the debate, right? Because they they really want to hold free will as being this libertarian sort of idea, where Dennett is just sort of sidestepping that and saying, no, there's this other thing, and that's actually what we really wanted. Okay, sure. Uh, GW, do you have any clarifying things you want to uh, ask before I dive No, in? actually, all of that was pretty clear. I was able to follow, almost like I, I know things. Great. <laughs> See? I knew you could know things and not just drink. Um so, 
let me, let me see if I can do one better than just saying, well, I don't like that different definition yeah. because it's not the common one, right? What I think, what, what we what we want to concern ourselves with when we have a definition is, is it what people, like you were saying statistically, is it what people are actually thinking when they commonly use that word as an important factor? And does it allow us to chunk up the world in useful ways, right? I, I'm, I'm yeah. fine with a pragmatic definition of free will, and, like, I get that Dennett is making that kind of argument in a sense where he wants to say, you know, this this kind of description of free will will be very useful in a practical kind of way. And I do agree with him in that kind of sense. I, I think where I first get nervous is um, he's being, I think, overly generous in thinking that more people aren't attracted to the stronger idea of libertarian free will. And more importantly, that we don't still see a lot of systemic problems in our society that stem from the implicit assumption of that libertarian free will. Yeah, no, that, that's perfect. That's exactly where I was hoping it would go because okay. the rest of the rest of Dennett's work then is to go, okay, I've made this switch, but now you're going to respond as you just did sort of like, but you, that still doesn't explain our intuitions towards what we commonly thought of free will as being that libertarian sense. Right? So the rest, the body of Dennett's work then is to go, Here's here's why those intuitions can either be uh, uh, satisfied in a sense that we can have that what what was captured by those intuitions can still be maintained within a deterministic system or to say that we actually didn't want those intuitions in the first place. Right. I mean, those are the two moves that he can make to try to have, like pump you towards uh, accepting uh, his version of free will. So I just want to be clear of what those intuitions are. Uh, and it's not always clear with Dennett. This this is kind of my own work to sort of distill what are the two most common uh, libertarian intuitions. And I've boiled them down to one view is what I call the source view, right? And that is that somehow you're the originator of your uh, behavior, right? Which seems deeply problematic to me, but yeah. Right. Ahead. Well, well right. it's... I, right. it, I agree with you that it's deeply problematic if you assume by saying that you're the originator that you're outside of the causal web of history, right? Uh, because you can't be the originator in the libertarian sense if you're a part of the causal universe because your your choices are determined by previous causes, right? Uh, but anyway, so that's the, the intuition, that you're somehow the originator uh, of your uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. The other intuition, uh, which I call leeway, which is often summed up by the phrase, I could have done otherwise, which is the idea that there's multiple paths ahead of me and it's not determined which path I will go down. Right. So I had I had the option to either have my Cheerios or my Fruit Loops. Right. <laughs> Both paths are ahead of me. And even though I chose Cheerios, I could have chose Fruit Loops. Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think that, again, determinism lays fault to this in that uh, the reason I chose the Cheerios is because my neurons were in such a way such that I had I was more predisposed to choose them given previous things or etc down the causal chain and therefore I even though it might seem because my my understanding of the future is epistemically close to me I don't have the location of every particle in the universe so I personally can't tell from this standpoint whether I'm going to choose the Cheerios or the Fruit Loops but if I had that knowledge one of those options would have been chosen for sure right this mm -hmm. is sort of the idea of Laplace's demon right like if you knew the place of every atom in the universe you would be able to predict how everything was going to unfold, right? If you had a sort of like godlike stance. Yeah, though I, I mean, for me personally, I, f I find it much more appealing to talk about the psychological kinds of determinism than the particle kinds. But I, the principle works mostly the same way. Yeah, I think it boils down. I mean, that's why I like scaled it up, right? I mean, in, right. in the sense like there are there are the psychological motivations, right? Maybe my wanting to choose Cheerios is because I saw a commercial that morning that was like only subconsciously aware to me, and really that was the the end factor that motivated me towards Cheerios, other than Fruit Loops, right? Uh, so you don't need to go all the way down to the particle mm -hmm. level. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so those, yeah, yeah go, no, on. go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, those are the main two intuitions. I don't know if, do you like agree that those are the, the main two intuitions or is there... You mean like the things that are behind the the libertarian view, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I definitely agree that like, and that they are, they are the things that are important to people 
because they are what is what we are caught up in when we think about ourself and our sort of egoic narrative. I am I am the person who chose to eat the Cheerios and not the Fruit Loops, and that choice originated from inside of me and not something external to me. Right. Mm-hmm. And they often, as you just described there, they kind of overlapped in, in ways, right? So it's mm-hmm. not necessarily that they're mutually exclusive, but uh, we often think that we could have done otherwise because we're the original source of our actions and so forth. Right? Can, can I ask a, uh, a crazy question? Um, yeah, go for it. I'm wondering, th- this is one sort of side of this debate I've never heard, which is, is it possible that free will isn't this binary thing and more of a spectrum? Like, for example, that that, you know, maybe it's 80% subconscious and deterministic, but that there's a 20% that is something you are actively doing. Like, I, that's, that's the one argument I've never heard. Mm-hmm. So this is actually part of Dennett's argument. Oh. <laughs> so let, let me you, just lay actually... this up for you and yeah. hand it on a platter. <laughs> We're not colluding. Yeah, will... There's no collusion. It's rigged. Wrong. <laughs> this whole thing is rigged. And this actually was, was actually going to be my next point, because this is actually Dennett's response to the source intuition, which is that uh, we evolved what he calls evitability, which, which has to do with our... Uh, we evolve degrees of freedom. And the way he, he sort of spells this out is that, take a rock, for example. A rock is sitting in a field and you hurdle something towards the rock. There's nothing about the rock that can then avoid the other thing from hitting Unless the rock right? has consciousness. Well, so here's the thing. So for, for <laughs> Dennett, uh, what he calls evitability, right? So in the rock's case, getting hit was inevitable. But for a bacterium, maybe it's not inevitable. Maybe something's coming towards it. It has sensors. It avoids the thing going to hit it, right? And you scale that up to to us. I can see a train coming and step off the tracks, right? So our sense of, of our ability to avoid things, what he calls evitability, in that it makes things not inevitable, uh, is 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 actually what he thinks we wanted. Uh, from free will to begin with, not not that we were mm. uh, uh, there's the, some so, sort of like uncaused divine spirit essence that he agrees doesn't exist, but that we actually evolved in the world and can can avoid material things, and it's actually the 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 fact of determinism makes that possible, right? Because with determinism becomes uh, comes with it predictability, right? So we also contrast this with a lightning bolt, right? If if a lightning bolt is going off in a field, but it's indeterminate, there's nothing you can do about it to protect yourself in the future from that lightning bolt, right? However, if the lightning bolt is predictable, you now can moderate your behavior to deal with that lightning bolt, right? And, and our ability to do that evolved, right? So the rock can never do that, right? And so this gets to what you were saying, GW, which is that there are degrees of freedom, right? Because it doesn't just go from the rock to us. It goes from the rock to bacteria to amphibians and so forth, right? Which all have varying degrees of freedom. We just happen to be, uh, not because it was destined, but we happen to be one sort of pinnacle right now of our understanding of what that is, according to Dennett, right? Okay. Aaron has so many things. No, no, this is this is good. I think we're getting to the meat of this nice and quick, which is nice, um, because I think what you are talking about in a pragmatic kind of way is useful. But I think I can push back a little bit on the claim that it allows us to resecure all of the things, especially the moral responsibility that you're claiming it allows us to resecure. So I do think it is very practical and and valuable to talk about more or less coerced kinds of decision making for example someone who makes a choice um in an in knowing all the information versus someone who makes a choice with limited information and a gun to their head that's a useful distinction to be able to make however it seems like there is a move that is going to be made here where this kind of deflated account of of better and worse forces and i think we have you know you would say dennett would have to agree what we're really talking about here is not libertarian free will, but rather having the right kind of forces driving your behavior. It's not quite like so. So when uh, GW says, well, there's this 30 percent that like acts consciously or something yet yeah, that might be true in a computational kind of way or a, a, um, a more abstract kind of way. But it isn't true in the sense of a more free kind of thing. It's really just different kinds of forces but better kinds of forces. And that's a, that's a fine 
distinction to make. The problem is, to me, we aren't in control of whether we have those better or worse forces within us. And so the moral luck problem, the problem of moral responsibility, still remains because even with this deflated account of free will, it doesn't make sense to say that someone who has the kind of free will Dennett is describing is still any more responsible for their actions. Right. So how, how Dennett gets around the moral luck problem, which I, I agree with you that it that's the crux of the issue here, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that somehow, you know, I'm not in control of the parents I had, right? And my parents both contributed genetic material to me and an environment that helped create the monster that is me, <laughs> right? right? And so, I mean, and that assume, was largely- You assume it yeah. was that. It could have been the postman. You don't know. Yeah. <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Uh, but, and so in that case, uh, I'm not in control of that. And it seems weird that if, if my behaviors emanated from these circumstances, which were beyond my control, how do you hold me responsible? Right? I mean, that is, that is the problem of moral luck. And, mm-hmm. and this is Dennis' response. I, I don't know how convincing I find it. I'm kind of skeptical about it, but I'd like to get your opinion. Dennis' response is to say that the, the relevant actors uh, it, it, on planet Earth, all of us, seem to have an ability in common, right? My ability to, to respond to reasons is not too different than your ability, right? In the sense that, like, I'm not in a vegetative state, or right? Like, we're both thinkers here on a podcast having a conversation. So, uh, and I and I think you have the cognitive capacity to reason, and and I hope you share the same with me. <laughs> so and far, so, so good. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and so, what that means is, we're on. According to him, that means that we're on a level playing field in a way. That the game called moral responsibility is a fair game for all those who have the relevant capacity to engage with reasons, right? Mm -hmm. And in that way, we can hold people responsible even though we might differ subtly, right? So long as we don't greatly differ, right? So say a rod gets shoved into my brain and I'm uh, now in a vegetative state, right? So I'm still alive, but now I can't engage with reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Or even like a Phineas Gage situation, right? So Phineas Gage, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, he was a patient who had a rod come up through his prefrontal cortex and could no longer plan for the future or other things, right? And so we might we might be more lenient towards him and say that, oh, his ability to reason has been deficient. And so we're not going to hold him accountable to the same respects that I would say hold Aaron accountable who hasn't had such a rod in his brain. Theoretically. Yeah, I- I think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as far as I know, um, I, I think that's a good way to do it. I think, and, and what I'm guessing is that it feels like the more we push on this, the more this is going to sort of the compromise position shifts towards the kind of position I have personally in mind where um, we can talk about better and worse kinds of moral luck and we can talk about the functional use of things like reward and punishment or praise and blame within a conventional, like you're saying, kind of we all agree upon it, kind of almost contractarian kind of system um, of saying. Well, Dennis, that, Dennis is very contractarian, which is like weird because it's sort of like buried in his work. Mm-hmm. And, and this and, and is most, so hold on before yeah. we dive too deep. What we just mean there is like we've all agreed upon this as a game that we're all going to play right. like society or money or something like that. Right. And I'll just direct uh, people. There was a really interesting exchange. I think it's on naturalism.org. And it's an exchange between Bruce Waller and Daniel Dennett. And this is really where Daniel Dennett highlights the what he calls the morality game and sort of like makes those moves. Uh, Waller is is someone, I can't remember the title of his book, but he basically argues that we have free will. It's just that free will isn't the type of thing that actually gives us moral responsibility, right? So he agrees with Dennett about all the things about evitability and our evolutionary history, but then concludes that regardless of all that, we still can't be held responsible for various reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. And usually, yeah, sorry. Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. I think... One, I mean, if if we can sort of all agree roughly on like there are there are levels of moral luck and with them levels of what we would call 
better and worse forces that are driving individuals and and depending on those great so we could say on a very practical level right if someone is being driven by better forces then we can expect that they will respond better to reward and punishment and so it makes more sense to reward or punish them whereas if someone like has not enough mental capacity to even understand why they're being punished for example it makes zero sense to try to engage in that kind of punishment towards them um but then i sort of want to pivot to the question of but what does it mean for the real world where we still see this libertarian idea of free will stamped on our social justice and stamped on our judicial system and that if academics continue to say well free will mostly kind of exists except the real world doesn't hear anything after the accept, but they continue to buy into the same systems that allow us to continue to mistreat certain groups. Right. I, this is this is actually impinges on like what a lot of my uh, or not impinges sort of like goes over basically what my master's thesis is all about. But mm-hmm. cool. P- part of part of the interesting thing here is that Dennett actually agrees with, I think, a lot of like progressive stances towards the criminal justice system, where if you push him, he's like, yeah, no, our criminal justice system sucks. And he agrees that we focus way more on sort of retributivist forms of punishment that he thinks are unjustified, right? Mm-hmm. So Dennett justifies punishment in terms of uh, consequences, right? So just as you laid out, if, if this... And... I'll, I'll take a second uh, to describe punishment in a second, but <laughs> because I, even the word punishment, you can go down a philosopher's rabbit hole of <laughs> what exactly that means. But for him, it you know, punishments are okay so long as they say contribute to global well-being or, or the well-being of society, right? Uh, now I might differ to him, with him what punishments entail, and this gets into the philosophical aspect, because for him. Uh, even sort of like restraining someone is considered a punishment where I might not call it a punishment. And the reason I wouldn't call it a punishment is because the reason I'm restraining you is not with the intent to punish you, but because maybe you're a danger to society, right? A punishment would be for me would say, say I restrain you, but then I punch you in the face and I do so because I think you deserve it, right? Mm-hmm. That now becomes a punishment to me. Uh, right? It, becomes, it, seems kind it becomes of an like, odd claim, right? Well, well, I mean, you shouldn't punish. Aaron's smiling because I said a philosophy thing that I'm learning. Punch, ought not to punch them in the face. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean uh, whether whether you punish in that extent, uh, I mean, it's still an ought claim whether or not you should restrain people, right? Should I restrain people? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's still an ought claim. I would just say that in that case, there's good reasons to want to restrain you. And I'm not doing it for punishing reasons, right? I'm doing it for, say... Right. safety reasons right the the punishment reasons seem to me like i'm going above and beyond merely protecting people but i'm do, i'm doing something to you because i feel like you deserve it because punishment is this ultimate good in itself or something like that right which is the what generally is considered retributivism which is that you because of something you did you deserve to be punished right so so if we can agree that there's still these major problems in society that seem to stem from this naive kind of libertarian view of free will. Um, would it make sense? I think another way to think about definitions rather than as capturing essential features or something, another pragmatic way to think about them is as correctives that how we use language can help nudge our ways of thinking in a direction that might not be that the language itself will change as we move in that direction too. that there might, come a time where it would be valuable again to talk about free will and how everyone has some form of free will but that in the meantime we were better off using different kinds of language that reinforce the concepts of things like moral luck and coercion that emphasize how in reality how in practice uh things are usually much more limited than we tend to assume yeah, I think, I mean, most people complain about semantic arguments, but, but yeah. I think this is an important semantic argument, right? Right. I, I'm that, one of the people who complains yeah. about semantic arguments, but I agree with you. This is one of the cases where a philosophical argument may just be a semantic argument, and that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad yeah. just to say that it is a semantic question. Can, can, I, can well, I throw in, I'm sorry, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, well, I was just going to respond quickly, which is that for Dennett, the importance here is that... It, I, he referred to one study. I can't remember the the author's names on that study, 
but it was a study where you tell people that they don't have free will and everything's determined and then you like leave a jar of candy out or something <laughs> and the people who were told that like determinism is is true and free will doesn't exist are more likely to steal the candy or something like that right and so <laughs> he <laughs> well here's the thing so that study hasn't survived replica the replication crisis that that happened in psychology yeah I'm but it's just fun- yeah but but dennett was initially and so i don't i don't want to like blame dennett for using the study right but so he used this study in a, in a lot of ways to to explain why holding on to free will is an important concept right so the reason why you would want to call what he's calling free will is because it seems like free will is important to people and you don't want to just ditch that language because ditching that language could have negative consequences right uh I argued on the flip side something that, that you're arguing here, so I'm, I'm glad we're in agreement with this, which is that holding on to that language might actually foster the same kind of retributivist attitudes that, that have consistently gone on throughout history. So there's there's another uh, legal philosopher named Stephen Morse who, who considers himself a compatibilist and sides with Daniel Dennett, argues that compatibilism gives you retributivism, right? And, and like to me, that's just way too far. And that's actually why using the, the language of free will is bad in my mind, because mm-hmm. uh, as much as I can agree with everything that Dennett is saying, like, why not just call it something else or try to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. GW's got some things. Uh, so I've there, there's one other variable, I think, in, in the free will conversation that I'm missing. And maybe you guys can talk to it is. Aaron, I've heard you speak about this specifically where, you know, the going back to the Cheerios and Fruit Loop choice, right? That there might be all these things that happened previously, that there are these past events that potentially are influencing your choice, right? But what about humans' ability to calculate and predict? So, like, if I use the example of two people, you know, playing catch and a person starts to throw a ball, the moment that it leaves their hand, the receiver knows that the ball's going to, it's determined the ball is going to be thrown in their direction. They don't know where yet. Once the ball has been in flight for a small amount of time, they're able to predict where the ball is going to be going, right? And so I'm wondering if that part of free will may be that when given the choice of the Cheerios or the Fruit Loops, that it's not just past events, but also the human brain's ability to, to predict future events. And they there might be a situation where they remembered, oh, I remembered last time that... I had Fruit Loops and I had an upset upset stomach, so this time I'm going to choose the Cheerios to, to avoid that. But a lot of that like breaks down in a circle, right? So like mm-hmm. your ability to predict things in the future are based on past events, right? Mm-hmm. So just like you said, right? You you had this previous experience and that sort of like adjusted whether or not you were going to choose the Cheerios or the Fruit Loops, right? Right. Uh, there, there, so- there's a statistical thing happening where like in the past. Every time the ball's been thrown, it has gone roughly in my direction, right? But then someone could start to throw a ball and it just lands straight on the ground, which would counter all of that, right? So I think there's statistical patterns, right? And I think people are really good at identifying patterns that they can draw upon in order to predict the future. Does that make sense? Well, and, and yeah, and in that moment there, like moments of surprise, actually, and, and this this gets back to your your consciousness episode, right? So, mm-hmm. so you were talking about like what's what is the evolutionary purpose of consciousness, and a lot of people speculate that it's this kind of like. Uh, uh, ruminating or going over things or, or, or being shocked into awareness, right? So the person who immediately throws the ball on the ground, when you expected it to go right into your glove, you become hyper aware of that situation. And that might influence your next decision by going, this guy's probably an asshole and isn't going to throw the ball to me. Or at least it, it creates a sense of doubt that the uh, your sense of predictions there might be ruined in some sense. It might affect your behavior going forward, right? And even that sort of like conscious going over things, is something that a lot of people see how the prediction stuff works. So if I really want to remember to take out the garbage on Friday, I'll go over it in my head and go, remember to take the garbage on Friday, remember, right? And I'm doing this conscious sort of like assessment of this thought. And then that makes it more likely that in the future, I'm going to take the garbage out on Friday, right? And so uh, past cognizing and like uh, going over uh, these stuff is is sort of what helps us make these predictions in the future, Uh, and again, that's part of the, our cognitive capacities as human beings to do this, at least if you're the relevant kind of but it's, cognizer. We're not special. 
about it. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I, I agree with GW that these are the kinds of things along with that lack of ap- epistemic access to the future that gives us the illusion of free will. These are all clearly part of why we have this very, very vivid impression that we have free will. But I think this is a good spot where computational science and, and cognitive science has um, kind of dashed all of the hopes and dreams of the free will advocates here because we have AIs now that do everything you're describing. They predict the future. They assess new outlying data. They ruminate on that outlying data. They set up um, you know, reminders for themselves in their own kinds of formats to make sure they don't miss a key thing in their processing. Like They're doing all of those things, and yet we wouldn't describe them as being free. We would describe them as being, I think, less free than even the most coerced human being in our personal sense, in our intuitive sense. So I think that throws a major wrench into the idea that any of this sort of spectrum stuff can really be devised based on our more advanced abstract reasoning. Yeah, but I think that's that that might uh, have more to do with our own preference in seeing ourselves as these godlike entities, right? So it's like just because robots are starting to do the things that we do, people might want to go, yeah, but they're still not us, right? Or or it's still even though it might be approaching us, it's still not the same kind of thing, or right? And and there's ways to s- sort of make that distance. I I, I think there's a, there's actual we don't want to get too ahead of the game and completely anthropomorphize the computers, but I, in some sense there, there's going to be ways in which the computers are going to start interacting with the world in the way that we do and making predictions and based on those predictions, making choices and so forth. And eventually that's going to approach exactly what we're doing. But and like to we, me, that doesn't worry me. I, are we ever going to hold them morally accountable in the same way that we hold ourselves morally accountable? I mean, like maybe in the distant future, but like it seems to me there's going to be a large period of time where they are going to act like us, but we are not going to treat them like us. Well, uh, I'm the, sorry, let me yeah. try with two things. One, uh, I think it's hilarious that, Aaron, you're saying that when later you're going to try to give agency to an AI. Number two, <laughs> uh, that's a little hint to our hero of the week. Uh, number two, I, I think it's already happening with people blaming the AI computer, the self-driving cars that are running people over. Like, I think people are already holding them accountable and not like the people who are supposed to be taking over for the car and things like that. But isn't it a reductio ad absurdum to like shout at the car and like put the car in jail? Like, (laughs) well, I mean, this, we have, this is a reflection of human beings, right? I get mad at my cat. My, I can't like my getting my getting mad at my cat <laughs> is not going to influence my cat's behavior such that uh, she will not do the things that I don't like, like scratching my couch. Right. No matter how much I yell at her, that that's not going to change. Right. And yet I still feel the impulsion to want to yell at her because I want her to stop scratching my cat or uh, scratching my couch. Right. Uh, similar. And so I feel like there's. You don't want to conflate this, right? Because there's a sense in which, yes, we I yell at my car, we're going to yell at self-driving cars, we're going to yell at AIs that are doing the things that we want. Uh, and we might even have a sense of moral opprobrium, like, you should function better <laughs> or something, right? But I, it's not, it's not going to be meaningful until they are like us in the relevant sense. And you pose the question of like, will, are, are you're worried, I don't know how you parsed it, but something like you're worried that they're gonna be like us, but we're still not gonna think of them as agents. Or are you thinking that we shouldn't even think of them as agents, even though they're like us? I mean, I think there are lots of problems. I think that it, the first problem is that if you make the, the kind of move that you and I think Dennett wanna make, where we say they are, not just it, you know, sort of de facto, but in reality, there's no difference between even current AIs really and us in these various um, capacities. That that really raises serious questions about again, it re-raises all of the moral luck questions about holding anyone responsible for anything. If if we if I'm really no different than the self-driving car, and it seems weird to hold the self-driving car that is merely a product of its programming responsible. It, it seems weird to hold me responsible, and if the machine gets more complex, it's going to be weird to hold it responsible too, no matter how complex but, it is. But gets. I don't, I don't think the car is is there yet, right? In the same way that, like, if if you 
if you went up to my wife and said, you're ugly or something, <laughs> right? I might, I might turn to you and go, don't do that to my wife. What were you thinking? Right? Like, and so like, I'm now like throwing it out there that I, I have moral opprobrium towards you. And you're the, because I assume that you're the type of creature that can respond to those reasons and maybe self-reflect and go, yeah, that was a terrible thing to do. And you could change your behavior in the future, right? Because if you couldn't change your behavior in the future, me making, just like when I do it to the cat, me making that statement has no effect, right? And so, I mean, I assume that you can respond to those reasons, right? But I don't think the cars are there yet. Maybe if the car is there, if the car starts insulting my wife (laughs) 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 and me telling it to knock it off actually motivates it to not insult my wife, then that's a different situation. So I think you should have used the example of Aaron scratching your couch and you yelling at him because I think that would have been a a, a better (laughs) metaphor. Uh, So then let me ask this question. Assuming that it's position of free will, is consciousness a uh, requisite for free will then? In so far as it's related to reasons responses. Aaron yes. hates this so much. <laughs> no, no, it's, 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 it's fine. This whole episode. <laughs> no, you're doing great. It's just that you, we got to clarify which wor- which version of consciousness you mean. Oh God that's damn a, it, Aaron! Like, I'm not a remember, philosopher. Remember our cluster term discussion, right? It's a cluster term, and and it's it's funny because then it's going to say under his definition of consciousness these things are conscious well not re- so no actually he wouldn't he wouldn't uh, well he's an well, intentional unless, guy isn't no he? no so unless unless it becomes like uh like as i described the car that actually can insult your wife and do so <laughs> in the same way that you could insult my wife right but he doesn't think that the algorithms and stuff that exist right now that are doing stuff are conscious like us at all in fact he actually doesn't think that most of our animals are conscious like us either how does he how does he make that distinction? That's that's super weird to me because uh, I would I would refrain from getting into it right now because <laughs> right. another episode that is a really yeah. I but mean, that seems anyone, like a big problem. If any, it has something to do with language, the evolution of language, and he oh, goes into more. No. Yeah, it goes into more detail in his book, uh, his new book, from Bach to Bacteria and Back. I think is the title of it. It was released last year. I think is this uh, going to be some kind of like Sapir Wharf thing? No. Okay. I don't think so. No, I mean it's 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 more uh, the Cole Notes version is it, and I'm completely bastardizing it here, so you would have to go back and like read that book. But uh-huh. it's basically the idea that with language uh, sort of gives us these sort of like recursive sort of like behaviors, uh, and what what he calls like mind tools that like evolve out of this, which he calls memes, and a lot of people uh, mm-hmm. criticize him for the use of that. Uh, but it's, it's language giving us these things, these mind tools, uh, allows us to, to have self-reflective properties that we wouldn't otherwise have and that other animals don't have because they don't have language. That seems so uh, weird to me. I mean, like, like I agree with him that language provides those self-reflective properties. I can't imagine saying that current AIs lack sufficiently self-reflective properties. To- I, well, I would think that they lack the complexity uh, of human cognition, right? I mean, that just seems like specializing us all over again, right? He's, he's going back no, to No, he saying, is specializing us. He thinks that we're special. I don't, I don't understand how he, can, <laughs> how he can square that with any of the other things we've discussed. So that's, that's... Well, no, like we're special, but only by degree, right? I mean, in the sense that there is nothing out there right now that is like us, but it's not in principle impossible to create something that is like us. Well, it, de- right? yeah. so does that make it sense? sort of depends on, on the way you define all of that, right? It, like going back to the language thing... Like we have found now that the way that elephants communicate is by stomping on the ground, that they're actually sending sound waves through the ground by doing that. So I think like it is, it's a very sort of human centric kind of a way of perceiving consciousness. Well, no. Did I do that? Did I do that right, Aaron? You did. (laughs) You did. I'm pretty. Here's here's how to make the distinction that he wants to make, right? Which is that, like, yes, of course, there's there's vestiges, uh, or I wouldn't even say vestiges. There's different different evolutionary paths towards language that one can take, and the elephants could be on one of those paths right now. We share one with the bonobos and the chimpanzees, and they have relevant, similar sort of like. Uh, language capacities at us in various ways, but we are the ones who say can do Shakespeare or like other things, right? I mean, 
we're not dolphins, right? <laughs> I mean, that's like should be should be a a, a non-trivial statement. Uh, I or, wish or we were it should, dolphins be, it should be a trivial. You statement. should talk to Randy Marsh uh, about that, <laughs> uh, right? And so, in that sense, like, of course, we're we're special in that sense, right? We have a faculty that no one else seems to have, or no, no other creature seems to have. But it doesn't right. mean that they can't get there, or there isn't a path to get there, right? So, there, so in Dennis' view, there is something special about us. It's just not special in some sort of magical, unattainable way. But right? it's also not special in a way that can really sustain any robust sense of moral responsibility. It can sustain a fake sense of moral responsibility that we we all agree to for a functional purpose. But I, I think if it can't sustain the like more robust kind of moral responsibility that people I think do still tend to associate with free will, I think it's very weird to call any of this free will. See, but he, he counters with this, which is that we do it with our own species, right? So there is no fine line between, say, 16-year-olds being able to drive uh, and 15-year-olds not being able to drive. And yet we make some sort of distinction because like, clearly like 13 is probably too young. And like if we wait till like 18, like we've waited clearly too long. But there's probably some spectrum there. And for pragmatic purposes, we're going to draw a line, right? Sure. And so in the same respects, I mean... I don't know, try to reason with an elephant and it'll only get you so far compared to when I reason with you, right? And so I don't think in principle he's saying that there isn't going to be some species that evolves that we couldn't do this with, but that because they haven't evolved that, we're not going to treat them like we treat other people. Or right? could, They're not going to be included be, in the morality it, game. It right? could be that some of these animals actually do have reason, reasoning capacities. We just lack the ability of interfacing with them through some type of language. I, I just still get hung up on the idea that it seems like what we're going to end up saying is some people are lucky enough to have free will and some people are lucky enough not to. And I don't think that's quite accurate. I think it's more accurate to say none of us have free will, but some of us are lucky enough to be influenced by what we would consider to be healthier rather than less healthy forces. I want to push back against this. I'm curious why you would have a problem with that. I mean, especially since we are evolved creatures, right? So you wouldn't want to conceptualize free will as being some sort of essential property, right? The, the sort of magical property that he thinks that libertarians keep talking about, right? right. It seems like if free will exists in a, a world in which we are evolved creatures, that it's got to come in gradations. And, it, and if it comes in gradations, there is going to be some extent to which luck plays a role in that. In the same way that the rod going in Phineas Gage's head was not Phineas Gage's fault to a certain extent. Well, I mean, it could have been in his case. I don't know the story. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, no, no from the story in theory. I think it was an accident. But anyway, <laughs> um, I don't disagree that there is going to be a spectrum in terms of healthiness of consciousness and its ability to respond to more better or worse uh, forces basically um but i don't i don't think that it ever i feel like if we use the free will terminology and and try to maintain the free will terminology in the real world we are going to still essentially end up saying well these people don't have free will and these people do in a way that will still convey to some people the impression that one group is a different a different level of person than the other group because like like we've been saying here's, let me, here's what it is here's what i think is I'm, I'm worried about right so much of what we've talked about here is that uh how we view ourselves is tied up in this idea of free will and independent choice right we've all agreed to that to some extent if we say here's this group of people who are high enough on the gradation that we're going to count them as being free. And here's this group of people who are low enough on the gradation that we're not going to count them as being free. I'm concerned that we've essentially divided the world into real persons and non-persons. So I'll give you Dennett's answer and then okay. I'll give my own. So, so like Dennett's going to say that, again, this gets back to the fairness issue. 
Uh, and in some sense, what uh, GW was saying earlier about knowing it when you see it, right? <laughs> Which is just that we all we all seem to know it when we see it. And I talk I talk to GW. He responds. He seems like a reasonable person. I, I he's now a member of the moral responsibility game. We're a team. That's that's right? a terrible choice. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't right? I don't so, know it when I see it. <laughs> but I mean. You, I, I, you would admit that you do, though, because like again, no, the cat, I, I the cat admit, isn't responding to you. I right? admit and that Phineas I have Gage to like isn't responding, right? Yes and no. I mean, like I admit that I have to play this game with people, but I don't see myself or them as being any more or less free, depending on the level of game that I have to play it at with them. It's all it's only comes down to a matter of which forces are going to be more or less effective with that individual. Well, again, I, I don't think Dennett is going to get that fine grained, right? For Dennett, it's just that we're fair enough, right? Once you reach a certain threshold, you're now capable of being in the game, right? So it's not about particularizing each individual and saying you're more or less free than the next individual. But there's definitely going to be a cutoff between you're not included because of you've fully lack the capacity, right? And here's where I agree with you. I think that this is actually kind of terrible. <laughs> In part because, I mean, there's people lower on that spectrum, whatever you want to call that spectrum, that just no matter how they try, they might not ever get up to the reasoning capabilities of, say, like a moral saint that's out there that just can engage in the world completely rationally and make the best moral decisions possible, right? Uh, and, and you're going to have this spectrum across the board and, and most often because of, say, social circumstances or yeah, other things exactly. that, that prevent people from be, being able. Right. And so he sees the system as fair and I don't. And, and I think that's why. Uh, yeah, as yeah. long. And here's here's, though, at the end of the day, it might not matter all that much because of how Dennett is portraying what he views the criminal justice system as. And I think that he definitely is more on the progressive side of that issue. Uh, even though, like, again, that gets into the, we'll go back to the semantic issue. It might not work out uh, as well for him, right? But right. I think we both can get on board that, yeah, we want to make that system better because we don't want to disadvantage people who had were born into poverty or other things, right? Absolutely. Um, and and that is definitely my concern is that this this language can become another form of the, like, the haves and have nots between yeah. races that we've, you know, as philosophers, we know we've seen generations after generations be told you don't really have quite these levels of capacity or something. You're not quite this able to, you know, be this um, self-aware <laughs> and stuff and therefore, you know, stick to the things that you can actually do. And that's that's a scary thing to to continue to perpetuate, I think, within our language. I So yeah. I, I've, I, again, I have two things. One, it's seeing, I wonder if, the free will thing is similar to like, you guys know in magic what card forcing is. Is that a new uh, thing? No. Uh, it, so like when a magician, you know, fans out some cards and says, you know, pick a oh, card, okay. right? There's mm -hmm. techniques to do what's called card forcing where they actually make you pick a card. You actually, you think you're deciding that and you are freely picking a card, but they're actually handing you a card and you don't realize it. Um. So I'm wondering if that might be a little bit of the free will thing where you think that you have free will, but it's not actually there. So the we're sort of coming up to about like five minutes left or so. Uh, and mm -hmm. I'm wondering if as a way to sort of end this, um, what what could be the ramifications of continuing or not continuing to say that people have free will? Because I think that's an interesting thing that could probably be a whole episode on its own, but like... I think that there is an interesting point that Jody, you had mentioned before of, you know, if no one has free will, does no one have agency and no one has responsibility for their actions and does that influence people's behaviors? Actually, that that was something I just wanted to bring up too, which is perfect. You're like reading my brain this whole time. Yeah, it's because it's <laughs> determined. Uh, so a paper I'm, I'm working on right now, well, uh, to respond to that flippant comment, <laughs> determined means you have free will. It's all good. <laughs> but uh, I'm writing a paper right now uh, addressing feminist issues with moral luck, right? And one of the biggest concerns that feminists have for the kind of view that you're espousing, Aaron, in that we don't have free will, right? Their worry is that 
For people who are, say, marginalized or put in a situation of oppression, it seems concerning to say that they lack responsibility or they don't have agency because of the oppressive, oppressive situation that is, uh, that I would agree might limit various aspects of their agency, right? And so there's, there's this history in, in D8, like, uh, uh, those those pores that just can't help themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you sure. know what I mean? And yeah. so there's there's a worry about, I, I agree with you, there's the one worry where you just completely ignore systems at all and you just focus on the individual being the sole arbiter of their responsibility. Uh, and, and Dennett might be closer on that spectrum. But then there's the other worry in saying that the systems are all there is and people lack agency and therefore it feeds into this paternalistic narrative, right? And mm-hmm. and I don't know fully, I haven't fully thought out how I want to balance that spectrum. <laughs> it might it might just be that we have to live with that spectrum, right? That yeah. we have to understand that there are systemic issues that influence people and affect people, but we also have to treat people with agency as if they have responsibility and so forth and find some way to like mesh it together. But that's my broad thought. I don't know how you... No, no, I think that's good. I think we've we've had some requests to do an episode that's a deep dive on moral luck. So I think we, I might do might might save a little bit of my thoughts here and and try to do a full episode, sort of following up on this discussion and talking about um, how to talk about moral luck in ways that avoid that problem. Because I do agree that it is a legitimate concern. It's the it's the flip side of you're right. It's it's the exact sort of flip side of the concern that I have, where we use this language to. Um, take away, uh, or, or that we use, um, no matter how we use the language, we end up taking away people's agency in a bad kind of way, where what we yeah. really mean to try to do is take away the sense of unjustified guilt or shaming that comes with giving the impression that they have agency where they don't. And so it, it is very tricky. I think my, my, my short and sweet would be this is why I, I find the no self Buddhist free will stuff to be very valuable is to say it's not just external systemic forces, it's internal forces that are, you know, real. There are parts of you, but they're not under your control and they're not radically you in the sense that you were talking about with the source kind of thing. There is no thing within you that we could say is you that is the true source of your behavior. There's just lots of forces inside of you and lots of forces outside of you and the system at play trying to balance all those forces. I guess that's where I would land. <laughs> For now. Right, we'll see where I get pushed next. Where someone uses um, their free will to push you to a different direction. Is that what you think you are? A hero? Saved the world, didn't I? Once. Talk to me after you've done it a couple more times. So our hero of the week uh, is named Duplex, an automated voice assistant uh, revealed by Google to be able to make uh, do, do small on, on the phone tasks uh, with the same capacities or, or, or to, some, to be indistinguishable from a human being in certain tasks. So specifically things like setting up appointments or reservations. Over the phone. Um, there, yeah. There's some amazing audio. I don't know, maybe GW, do you want to see if you get a chance to splice in a tiny bit of the audio? Oh, how can I help you? Hi, I'm calling to book a women's haircut for a client. Um, I'm looking for something on May 3rd. Sure, give me one second. Mm-hmm. Sure, what time are you looking for around? At 12 p.m., we do not have a 12 p.m. available. The closest we have to that is a 1.15. Do you have anything between 10 a.m. and uh, 12 p.m.? Depending on what service she would like, what service is she looking for? Just a woman's haircut for now. Okay, we have a 10 o'clock. 10 a.m. is fine. Okay, what's her first name? The first name is Lisa. Okay, perfect. So I will see Lisa at 10 o'clock on May 3rd. Okay, great. Thanks. Great. Have a great day. Bye. The thing I find hilarious is all of the times that we've talked about consciousness and and uh, your hard stance on how computers aren't there yet and AI isn't there yet. And now you're you're literally giving an AI agency by making it be the hero of the week. It has as much agency as a corporation. <laughs> I just think that's hilarious that you single-handedly are giving personhood to AI. 
Well done. Well you're, done. You're holding the robots responsible, Eric. <laughs> I'm, I'm finally... And what's amazing about this is the ethical debate is around whether these AIs have to identify themselves as machines when they talk to people. Because it's not a situation where someone is calling up like a telemarketing or calling up like a, a help service where they know that they might get an automated person. This person sounds like a human being and is calling a human being to set up appointments. And passing the Turing test with flying colors. Well, pass, passing a very limited version of the it's, Turing yeah, test. But yes, right. essentially, right? A passing a very weak, limited version of the Turing test. Um, and the question is, do, do does the, you know, if you're a cop rule apply to uh, AIs here? <laughs> Are you a cop? Are you a cop? So how, how does it pass the Turing test then? Is it because no one would... Because it's only like getting appointment information, no one will feel the need to ask it questions like, what is the meaning of life? Exactly. <laughs> it, it has it has enough limited amounts of tools to cope with. And it's, it's amazing the stuff they've put into, uh, let, me, let me bring up some of the details. Um, they taught it all sorts of kinds of problems that you would face in these limited natural conversation situations. They taught it... Um, Things like elaborations. So if the person asks for when, they taught it um, how to respond to synchronizers like "Can you hear me?" or interruptions like "Can you start over?" or pauses like "Can you hold on for a second?" I, I think it, gave, I think it's going to be hilarious when we get to a place where the receptionist also is an AI. <laughs> so it's just AIs calling each other, which would be just fucking ridiculous. <laughs> and maybe it starts off with like one of the AIs making some sound that humans can't hear, and the other AI hears it as well, and then they just like you know can synchronize their information so they can hang up real quick. But but this is why they're not human yet, because in that scenario, they might get in like a loop where they keep asking each other the same question and they get stuck and they won't be able to realize that they're stuck in this loop and get like out of it. Like the Echo and can. Google Home and, <laughs> and Siri all. You've seen those videos, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah, yeah. These AIs are actually programmed if they face a problem they don't have a solution to, to transfer uh, over to a real person. So they, they do the legwork and then bring bring in the human being when they need some help. Yeah. Uh, they also We're not are there yet. Do they, do no, they usually, say, like, I'm sorry, can you talk to my mommy? <laughs> <laughs> they do hums and uhs, though, which is pretty horrifying Whoa. when you listen to it. It's really creepy. This They call them speech uh, disfluencies. I'm not quite sure why. I don't have enough philosophy language for that one, but... um. I just I'm I, when I listen to it, you're like you, you really do have a hard time telling which one is the human. Did you did you end up watching the Dennett clip I sent you? It's like a two minute long clip of uh, uh, Dennett actually hates this fact that th like that we're making these. Well, no, not that you're making. Well, yeah, that we're, Google is making something like this, right? So he thinks that adding these cutesy flourishes to make computers look more human when they're not there yet actually will do a disservice to to how we interface with robots in the time being, right? Uh, because if you make them too human-like, people will already start attribute, attributing consciousness or morality to these things when clearly they're just canned responses mm -hmm. right? yep. it's almost like uh, the entirety of edm style of music <laughs> right and by by that i mean like it's programmed in to make these you know sounds and, and whatnot and then there are all these algorithms and techniques for what's called humanizing which is adding in imperfections in order to make it sound like a human's playing it and then you have some dj who looks like they're playing and twisting knobs when really they just hit play on a computer and they're just and so people go to these concerts and watch someone stand there and press the space bar on a laptop and they're just fancy ways of fooling you right because yeah. when i when i say um it's because i'm literally thinking <laughs> well it's the reason why we say um and things like though? that is because yeah. <laughs> in the way that our uh we are socially sort of groomed in order to talk is if I have a pause right here, it allows someone else to potentially interject. And so by going, um, uh, I am trying to hold the audible ground, as it were. Yeah. I wanted to let an awkward silence happen there just to... Yeah, I'll cut it out. Fuck, It'll be you. Fine. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> that was my delivered awkward silence. You leave that in. Never! <laughs> All right, we should sort of wrap it up. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Jody, for this wonderful discussion. I think um, I think our fans will very much enjoy the back and forth. Um, <laughs> uh, people should check you out at Skeptical Jody on Twitter. 
um, where you can if be you found. If you would like to become a patron, find us at Embrace the Void. Oh, yeah. As always, remember, you are the <laughs> void, and the void um, is And there's you. nowhere else you said, I think, that, that they can particularly check you out at the moment. Not yet. I, I had a podcast. The episodes are still up. It was Being Skeptical, and you can find that on Google Play and stuff. And we just basically covered skeptical issues. Uh, but uh, my my host, the void got to him. <laughs> oh, fair <laughs> enough. He, he did not want to participate anymore because there's a lot of terrible people in the world. It comes uh, for us all eventually. And so I, I eventually will start something up again. I don't know. I'm thinking more philosophy related since that's what I do with my life. Uh, but I, I, I haven't figured it out yet. Plus, I have a new kid on the way. So that's kind of taken precedence. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, if, but yeah, I'll, I'll have a podcast out soon and it'll be on my Twitter. Cool. So. If you ever need help with that kind of stuff, I'm happy to help out. With my kid? Yeah. I'll call you up for babysitting. You can come all the way out to Canada. They'll still <laughs> sit there and they'll be crying. And I was like, use your free will to feed yourself. <laughs> what are you, just a bacteria? Come on, do something. <laughs> they don't throw rocks at it to test it uh, out. <laughs> Why didn't you dodge? Your free will's not very useful, is it? Uh, well, All right, well, as someone you. who has a two-year-old uh, already, uh, yeah, they they don't respond to reasons very well. <laughs> so yet. maybe free will is like an I've emergent said, property, and it emerges. Yeah, and it emerges yes. around twenty-five or so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jody, and thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we will catch y'all next week. We would like to thank our new patrons, the audience, Jake the Fake Jake. Sean Oakley, and Ryan Tech. We would like to thank our top patrons, Jesse Rubinowitz, Dave Maslick, Abe, Peasants with Pitchforks and Clothes Sticks, Corey Johnston, host of the Brainstorm podcast and the Hardcore Skeptic, CampQuest.org, 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 and Mr. Nobody, and Chad Trait. If you would like to become a patron, find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. As always, remember, you are the void, and the void is you.